way, tell all your friends they can go my way, pay your toll, sell your soul, pound for pound, cost more than gold, the longer you stay, the more you pay, my white line, go a long way, either up your nose or through your fame, with nothing to gain except killing your brain. And here we are back again. Welcome back to Range Anxiety. I'm out in the Model 3 performance today. My name's Martin Donnan, and I'm your hostess with the mostest when it comes to bringing you 30 years of the automotive tuning experience in 30 minutes. And I'm excited today. I'm a bit wound up. I'm loving this today because I'm going to talk about something that's near and dear to my heart. Your feedback has suggested it. Yes, that's right. I want to hear about crazy conversions, Martin. And yes, I even used to write a column in magazines back in the day called Crazy Conversions. And oh yeah, I've been around the craziest of them many, many times over many years. Now, conversions today, they bore the living shit out of me. Yes, they're better than they've ever been. And yes, there's this great massive support infrastructure that goes around converting you know engines and transmissions into cars it's never ever been as good as it is now and it's never ever been as boring as it is now that's right conversions are crap and boring now why because how many times can you see an ls or how many times can you see a barra stuffed into something old and made to work well of course you're going to see it lots of times because it's bloody easy there's nothing to it even the factory ecus and these things are that programmable there's that much support there's that many engine mount kits there's that much stuff for these things that to get it wrong you would have to be a nonce that's right that's a good word isn't it courtesy of one of my favorite movies lock stock and two smoking barrels now yeah hashtag ls the world hashtag barrow the world hashtag put the world to sleep or at least put martin to sleep do any of you feel the same way if you do drop me some feedback to dtech at senet.com.au d-t-e-c-h at s-e-n-e-t.com.au and we will have more of a discussion about it however conversions weren't always boring stupid things no that's only something that's happened fairly recently, say the last five years. In the good old days, conversions were a cowboy adventure. You never knew what you were gonna get. You never knew if the engines were gonna even run and you knew that if they didn't run, they were probably made of parts that were that unattainium that you'd flushed your money down the toilet. It was just amazing. And, and to make these conversions work, you couldn't go to a normal workshop. Normal workshops didn't understand what you were trying to do and thought you were a mental patient. Nope. You had to dig the real mental patients out of the woodwork. One of these guys, unfortunately, he's no longer with us. His name's Richard Hunt. I used to call him Delco Man. The reasons why will become uh, very clear soon. But Richard was an absolute mad genius. He kind of reminded me of Doc out of, you know, Back to the Future. He could do stuff that people just don't do anymore and were too... Um, scared and, and to do at the time he could put anything into anything and he actually did that the reason that this happened is because back in the day there were no wreckers full of good holding engines in fact there was no such thing really as a good holding engine in the late 90s and you know that was in a wrecking yard that was when the LS first popped its head up on the scene before that it was you know 308s which were Okay, things, and you know, I'm, a, I'm still a bit of a fan, but they were hardly what you'd call power-productive juggernauts. 
whether the Japanese wreckers, now they were starting to get big back then because in Japan, stuff was cheap. It was kind of like giveaway cheap. When their cars wore out, they'd like put them in wrecking yards and when they even when they're out of rego and they'd cut them up and they'd sell what they called front cuts to people like us that were over there buying bits and pieces in Japan. So wreckers would bring in these exotic front cuts. Stuff that really, you know, hadn't been seen here before. Uh, VG20 DETs, VG30 single turbos, all sorts of weird turbo Mazdas, and not rotor, even piston ones, Toyotas of things we hadn't seen before. And they'd bring in front cuts, and with a front cut, you actually got the whole front of the car. You got like the engine, the transmission, the mounts, the loom, the fuse box, the relays, you got all of that good stuff. And if you were ever, and a lot, a lot of these just sat there and collected dust. I remember seeing the same front cuts at Wreckers for years that people were just too frightened to buy because had no use to them. These engines weren't going into anything Australian. You know what I mean? Because those cars didn't exist here. Back when we were still mucking around with 308s and at XF Falcons, the Japs had twin turbo quad cam injected juggernauts for ceramic turbine wheels and variable inlet runners and all of the good stuff that we even still talk about today. They were that far in front of us that it made these mystical front cuts something of great interest. But there were very, very, very few that had the balls to do anything about it. And why is that? Well, unless you knew what you were doing with the factory ECU, there was actually no way of making these things run properly. Now, there were aftermarket computers were pretty thin on the ground in that era, um, especially aftermarket computers that would interface to all of these standard sensors. I suppose that the best of them at the time that had the most crank trigger options was the Motec M series of ECUs. And yeah, you know, you could do some good things with them, but they were bloody expensive. In fact, that's what put a lot of the conversion guys off. They were professional level ECU and you paid professional money for them. There was also the Autronic that was around that was a very, very good ECU. Problem with the Autronic is that it was very finicky about what sensors it would talk to and what it liked. So what would happen is that you would, you know, need to put in different crank triggers and different, you know, it just all got too hard. So there were guys like Delco Man, Richard Hunt, that thought, stuff it, we're gonna give this a go. And they would get a front cut and they would smash the innards of that front cut into just about anything. In fact, the first time I saw Richard Hunt, he turned up in a Triumph 2500 TC, which is a like a four-door grandpa's version of a Triumph Stag. It had a horrible inline six in it with mechanical Lucas Prince of Darkness fuel injection in it. Wasn't a great thing, but he rocked up and he had a VG30 DE double T out of a Nissan 300ZX twin turbo stuffed into it, complete with transmission and all. Yeah, that's right. He had the four-speed electronic auto, this whole thing, and he's like, oh yeah, you know, I've got this out there. Do you want to come and have a look at it? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'll come and have a look at it. And I thought, there's no way this is going to happen. But sure enough, it was out there, it was in the car park, and it was running. It was absolutely incredible. And because it had about, well, three times the power of the standard Triumph, it went about three times as fast. And to a young guy, like I was at the time, it was bloody terrifying with this 30-year-old at the time, pommy suspension in it that hardly worked when it was new <laughs> and all of this grunt, but it was intoxicating. 
this guy could make these conversions work. Now he had a couple of issues with the ECU in it and a couple of things weren't perfect about it and he wanted to know if I could rewrite some of the software. Sure I could, that's what I did. I was the software guy, so I went and I rewrote the software and turned off a few things and put a bit more spark and a bit less fuel. You know, this weird thing happens when you do a conversion and I'll never know the reasons why. I'm sure there are some technical reasons. I just haven't looked into it long enough. But what happens is that you uh, you put everything in as per the factory and you don't touch it like how it came out of a 300ZX in this case. But the mixtures are never right. Even with the right airflow meter, you end up with really crazy air fuel ratios and you know it just won't be right so it was my job to get in there and tweak these things for delco man we'll get on to why we called him delco man in a minute and make them right and we did and that was very very cool and he would turn up i think his favorite weapon of choice was elderly volvos where the the dirty old four banger in them and just you know totally giving up the ghost or was using more oil than fuel and he would put like uh, CA18s, uh, VG30 Atmos, SR20, DETs, non-intercooled, you know, into these things and bring them to me. He did about four of them that I can remember. He would bring them to me and get me to make them run. And yeah, I could always get them to work to a degree. So it was pretty, it was pretty darn funny. And Delco man got intoxicated by me and we got intoxicated by the conversions and we used to see more and more of him. Sure, it could be a little bit annoying at times, but most of the time it was really, really, really good fun and I really enjoyed it. And the conversions kept coming thicker and faster till the wreckers decided it was about time to put up their prices. People started to get onto this thing of front cuts. My good friend Mark Tilbrook, who is a, a master fabricator from Tilbrook Auto and Dino, he used to get, I remember him doing an absolutely beautiful conversion. It was it was sensational. It was a late model VW water-cooled transporter and he, he took the standard horrible Volkswagen engine out of it and put a, um, put a uh, late model Subaru injected motor in it. And it was really, really, really good. He did a beautiful job of this conversion and it worked really, really well. So yeah, he did a great job of that and there were guys doing great conversions. There were guys doing shithouse conversions too, like they still do today. I mean, really crap ones. But the difficulty of, of doing these jobs properly kind of separated the wheat from the chaff to a fair degree. So, you know, you don't get as many rough crap conversions, or you didn't then, as you do today. Um, and yeah, not everything's an LS. Yeah. But the, the, the importers kind of got onto this, and they started to jack up the prices of their front cuts. So this was no good for Delco Man because he always had his eye on a reasonable budget. You know, he was always looking to do things on the cheap and use his own hands and fabrication skills, which he did pretty darn well. So he started buying engine packages instead. And they were packages where you would get a, an engine with a loom wrapped up on top of it. There's some sort of ECU that allegedly belonged to it, like in the matching airflow meter cable tied to the side of the thing and yeah you just put this all in and it will work and that's where these things started to become a problem so even with the skills of delco man sometimes it was that much of a mismatch of electronic components that it would just never never ever work properly so he got a little frustrated but he used to keep his eye over my shoulder and he looked at what we were doing with the delco p4 ecu at the time for you, those of you in america that was like what you had in your 304 tpi um 
tune port injection, IROCs and chevs of the time. It was a memcal based thing where all the calibration data was, was held on the blue EEPROM pack that plugged in and out of the ECU. We could rewrite this and I'd written some software to put it into plain English. And, you know, we could do four cylinders, six cylinders, eight cylinders, and we could change around crank trigger arrangements between them and, it, you know, change injector sizes and do all sorts of pretty cool shit with it. And we did, and Delco Man saw this and he thought, right, I'm going to start putting Delcos and everything. And they were cheap and accessible because those ECUs had a lot of problems with uh, dry solder joints. Delco Man knew this. He used to get the damaged ones for like $20, buy a loom from a wrecking yard, um, get a few sensors, they were all pretty generic in terms of map sensors, there were no airflow meters to worry about, get the right distributor triggering, uh, you could use like a normal, um, like a six trigger or an eight trigger reluctor wheel and just set the software up right to look for that kind of trigger rather than the crank trigger on the, the factory V6 and voila, we could make it work. And it was good, you know, we had some issues, we got it right with various injector sizes and having to run ballast resistors on the inject injectors so it would only uh, support high impedance. So we did this and we got all of these crazy Volvos, Triumphs, bloody all sorts of old European shit that was worth one buck that barely ran, re-heart transplanted with crazy high-tech Japanese engines all running some general motors ecu that had been hacked and it worked the hardest thing he probably ever had me do and one that i was never able to work right because he didn't bloody listen and i couldn't make a two-cylinder odd fire engine work correctly on a delco was a ducati motorcycle yes a ducati motorcycle and he wanted me to make it work and it kind of ran but it was never very effective he tells me later i got that fed up with him at one point he just gave him the software and said off you go and he started you know burning his own eproms and doing it and he assured me that he had that working properly but i don't think so i don't reckon he ever got it working right but hats off to the guy he was a master fabricator and a genuine pioneer and his type are the type of people that will be missed in this industry for many years to come. They don't exist anymore, and if they do, I don't know them. And if I don't know you, you don't count. It is my epicast. Yep, that's right. There's that word again. It is my epicast after all. So, yeah, times changed. Things moved on. And the conversion industry kind of moved on. And there were some good things done before LS engines were scattered throughout wreckers, there were some pretty good things done. I remember my mate Mark Tilbrook used to do a lot of really neat conversions. I think my favourite conversion of the era would have to be the Suzuki Swift G13B twin cam 1300 fuel injected, insected on the Epicast engine into Suzuki Sierra 4x4. There was a crazy mad doctor up the road from me that was a Suzuki nut. And if you're listening, Tom, Jack, or Bill, uh, yep, that was your old man. <clears throat> That's him, Dr. Bill. He was a mad Suzuki guy, and he did some beautiful work too. And he used to, I reckon we did a couple of these, programmed a couple of these G13B conversions for him. And they used them for stuff like off-road racing. And, and, you know, they were just great. You, you take out the stock nasty one liter or whatever it was, semi-carby slogger whatever it was thing in them and you put the g13b in there extend the rev limit at a 9000 rpm or turbocharge it but they took a turbo really really well and you were you were in with a package that was that potent particularly in sand because they were so light that they were capable even in a fledgling era of off-road racing they were a really capable combination that to me was a favorite 
a favorite conversion. Um, another conversion or type of conversion that I really enjoyed was when people would take the parts that were available in a parts bin at, at Chap Wreckers for just about nothing. Um, I mean, you know, I can tell you, I used to go to Japan with a, a Japanese wrecker or importer and anything you could put in a, a Hessian bag, like a big Hessian bag, like a big potato sack bag, you could have for $100, $100 US or, or thereabouts, and you could fit turbochargers, your manifolds, turbo timers, boost controllers, blow-off valves. You could put about 5000 bucks more in a bag and bring it back to Australia for 100 bucks plus freight. So the wreckers were absolutely littered with just generic turbochargers that would never go on anything. And I remember my mate, Mark Tilbrook, had this XF Falcon Ute. I think it was an XH, but for all intents and purposes, it was a dirty old... Um, was it a single cam thing? Was it a pusher? No, it was a single cam thing. It was a dirty old six-cylinder, four-litre, and it had the EC4 fuel injection on it, which was pretty much non-programmable other than by me at the time. Yep, what a hero. And he goes, I want to turbocharge this thing. It's too good to throw in the bin, the whole car. But And it was. It was a nice, clean car, like most of his stuff. But it's really boring me. So we took a trip, we got our thinking hats on and we took a trip down the, the Japanese wreckers and I think for $100 each, we got a pair of VG20 DET, so two litre single turbo ceramic turbochargers and we put two together, we figured, so one on a two litre is good, two on a four litre will be good and we did a twin turbo Falcon that used, I reckon it was a GDR intercooler in the front of it, used a host of Japanese bits on it to make it work. I can't remember what injectors we put in. I reckon they might have even been GDR injectors. So it was like this East meets West thing. And Mark fabbed up all the manifolds and did a beautiful job of the pipe work and made one of his, you know, fabled mandrel bent exhaust systems that took him hours, but was just beautifully hung and, and worked all really well. And then it was my job to make the whole stupid thing work off the EC4 computer that had no real way of sensing boost and we couldn't really interface different map sensors to and these things were only programmable via the J port, the port on the back of them. I think they, there's still things around for them called J chips or something like that, some frustrating things. But, you know, we had some reasonable access to it, but I was caught in a, a bit of a trap where I had to fuel it at about two pounds of boost that fueling had to work at 12 pounds of boost. So I had this big rich dip in the middle on the dyno that I thought was going to be really, really painful on the road. But there wasn't a lot I could do about that. I couldn't tune around it. So we thought, oh, we'll see how it goes on the road. I reckon it made about 210 kilowatts at the wheels, up from about 120. So it was making all of, you know, in the end, we got like 300 horsepower and or about 330 dyno jet horsepower or freedom units, as the Americans like to call them, at the wheels out of it. So it was a fair thing but the whole good thing about it is that it was on full noise it was on full torque from about 1800 rpm because these turbos were a bit too little for it so 12 to 14 pounds of boost this thing actually didn't die and choke in that hole of overfueling it just ripped straight through it like a mad thing the tires absolutely on fire and sideways and the transmission, thankfully we could tune that. We were able to pull the line pressures right up in it and make the trans work. So you could drive this thing quite normally and it got reasonable economy. You know, we scaled it for the injectors okay. You could drive this thing quite normal and then lay on the throttle 
have none of this richness and just have this thing sideways up the road. And it was hilarious. It was hilarious fun. In fact, I think Mark's greatest scalp with it was when a, a well-known nine-second R32 GDR, it might have only been a 10-second one, pulled up alongside him at the lights and wanted to have a little run with him. And, uh, yeah, the guy figured, well, I don't need to launch this for the dirty old Falcon Newton. He got caught napping and he got absolutely blitzed by the Ford Ute. Now, we did a whole series of this uh, on this car called Workhorse Wake Up at the time in Zoom magazine. So some of you that are uh, you know, aficionados of Zoom Mag may remember that car and may have uh, you know some great memories of it and say, oh, Martin, you know, you forgot to mention this or you forgot to mention that. I probably did, but it's my epic cast and I'll forget stuff when I want to. Actually, I don't intend to, but there's just so much stuff that we've been around over the years that you do tend to forget a lot of it and just remember the highlights. I reckon that Falcon Workhorse Wake Up, I reckon it's still going today. I remember Mark sold it to one of his good mates. I'm not sure if he ended up taking the turbos off it, but, you know, for the life of us, Mark knew how to drive a car hard when he wanted to, didn't you, Mark? And uh, he couldn't hurt the thing. He really could not hurt the thing, not at all. And I remember he took it out to one of the very first fledgling drift days in Australia because South Australia is where it all started. That's where drifting started in this country. Yep, sure did. I know this because I was there filming it and I was part of it. And there was, you know, CA18 Sylvia's and the odd old Sora and you know if you had an SR20 turbo you were pretty exotic and Mark took this thing out there and it wasn't the best you know technical drift car but it was capable of lighting tyres into top gear so that was a really really cool bit of gear and it brings back some fantastic memories and that we couldn't blow it up um yeah now there are no doubt plenty of really cool conversions that I've forgotten about in fact the coolest of all, uh, there is one guy, and he's a Kiwi, and he's a mad Kiwi. I don't know his name, but he's still doing conversions now, and he's the only one I, I really like, or his work's the only work I really like out there at the moment. He was a guy that took the beautiful 5.5 V12 out of the Ferrari 456 and put a dirty, stinking old rotary in it, some big ported rotor in this banged-up-looking Ferrari in New Zealand. I love what the Kiwis do, brew. They've got some great talent for just innovating and inventing, and some of them aren't half bad drivers either, if you watch local motorsport here. And, yeah, he put this dirty old rotor in and made this Ferrari brap brap, and, you know, there's all sorts of internet rumour. I don't know if it's true. It probably is, because I know how Marinello can get their nose out of joint about stuff. Apparently, Ferrari sued him, you know, over defacing one of their cars. I don't know why they'd want to. It's, like, 20-something years old. But yeah, he's just got his hands on a Model S Tesla. Now, normally, I like my Teslas. That's no secret. You should all know this by now. He's got his hands on a Model S, and he's defacing it big time. I think it was some prank thing, and he's stitching it back together, but I think it's damaged the power unit. So he's doing the right thing and putting another dirty, stinking rotor into a Tesla. He's going to make the Tesla slower, noisier, filthier, and generally worse than it ever was but in every way he's going to make it better because what he's doing is actually cool. Listen to this, LS converters, and understand that innovation is the coolness of new conversions, not being a sheep and not following the leader. I'm sure this guy will do some crazy things, and Kia Ora Brew, if you do. Now, 
What I want to know is what cool conversions have I missed out on? I want you to email me feedback to dtech, D-T-E-C-H, at senet.com.au and tell me about all the coolness in the conversion game that I've just missed out on. Because, I, you know, we can do many epicasts about conversions. I've just scratched the surface of what I know. I've many documented away in the archives. All I need to do is go and look at some of my old tuning directories, which I still have saved from 20 years ago, and go, oh, God, remember that thing? Oh, yeah, yeah, I did that. Oh, I did this but I need you to come and tell me about yours. So don't forget to email me. Please email me. I answer every single one of them. And thank you for tuning in to Range Anxiety.